0: Hi, and welcome to Power of Ten, a podcast about design operating at many levels from thoughtful detail through to organisational transformation to the changes in society and the world. My name's Andy Polane, a designer, educator and writer, and currently group director of client evolution at Fjord. The meta theme this year for the Fjord Trends was value. And so I was excited to see that Envision, a company whose tools and platform many of our designers use published their report about the design maturity model and it's all about the value of design to business. I caught up with Leah Bewley, a veteran of the experienced design industry and the author of the book The User Experience of One. She's director of InVision's design education team and the main author of the report. And Erin Walter, author of Design for Emotion, also a veteran design leader, educator and vice president of InVision's design education team. Leah, Aaron, welcome to Power of Ten. Thanks. Thanks for having us. So we've got lots to talk about. But first of all, I gave you the the little one-line bios. Could you tell us a little bit about your background, Leah, and how you got to be where you are now?
1: Uh, Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I have a a kind of interesting hybrid background, I would say. Firstly, I've spent a lot of time in the experience design field. Uh, I actually started out as a developer. I was doing HTML and JavaScript and CSS. And I, through that role, got exposed to the concept of user experience design and and sort of fell in love with it. So I moved into user experience design, spent, you know, close to 15 years actually working as a practitioner in house, agency side. I spent some time at Adaptive Path and then moved into more like a design enablement roles. Uh, At Intuit, I was in their uh, design innovation group, which focused on training the whole organization on design thinking. But at a certain point along that journey, I got more interested in some of the bigger questions, I think, around our field. And and there was a moment professionally when I thought, okay, well, do I want to just kind of keep Going down the kind of design team path, or do I want to zag left? And I decided to zag left and, and jumped over um, into a, a different kind of role working as an analyst, uh, for Forrester research, uh, looking at the design field more broadly and its growing importance in business and, uh, worked there at Forrester. Being an analyst was a fascinating education. And then I went, uh, independent doing commissioned analysis and uh, design organization consulting. And uh, from there, ended up at uh, Envision, which is this amazing opportunity to fuse those two perspectives. Uh, In the design education team, I get to analyze and research and amplify the stories of how design is enabling businesses. But I also bring my my own personal perspective as a practitioner, and that works. I feel very, very close to the community that we're, we're serving and, and, and close to what we're doing. So
0: it's been fun. Yeah, I can imagine. And what about you, Aaron? When I first met you, I think you were still at MailChimp.
2: Yeah, I, likely I also have kind of a circuitous career path that my background is actually in painting. My undergrad degree and my graduate degree are in painting. And in my, my younger years, all I wanted to do was make art and, and do creative things. And I kind of got to a point where I felt like I had this realization that it's, uh, At the time, it was the late 90s and uh, not the late 1800s when, you know, back in the 1800s, a painting could change the world. And at the moment when I had this realization, uh, you know, it was the web that was changing the world, the way that, you know, commerce works, businesses work, culture, you know, the way we communicate. So I kind of naturally found my way into that space and I taught um, for a number of years. I taught digital design. I taught things like history of communication media and perceptual interfacing, and that led to writing. And uh, I wrote a book. My first book was called Building Findable Websites, which was a book that I wrote to try to fill a gap for a class that I was teaching that there's nothing really out there. At the same time, I was you know freelancing and um, designing and, and building websites and web, web applications for uh, clients. And then um, that book that I mentioned um, connected me to Ben Chestnut, uh, who's the CEO and co-founder of Mailchimp and I was writing about Mailchimp and was a, a customer for a number of years and um, you know I, I said, "Can I come by and interview you for my book?" and uh, he said, yeah well why don't you why don't you just come work for us um, and help us start a design team so I ended up doing that and I joined at the very beginning at the, the transition when MailChimp used to be the rocket science group, it still is the rocket science group uh, secretly, and that was an agency and they started to build a product for their clients and uh, so they were making a transition. And I spun up the design team there, was given just unprecedented freedom to explore ideas in the brand and in the interface and uh, grew that and, and learned a ton. And then... I joined Envision uh, a few years ago, I uh, was talking to Clark, who's our, uh, Clark Valberg's our, our CEO here at Envision, and uh, he's a very sharp guy, prescient, and said, you know, you could kind of squish together that first part of your career that was around teaching, and that second part of your career around product design into uh, this new role at, around design education at Envision. So, yeah, it's kind of an opportunity like like Leah describes, uh, hard to pass up.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I've had a similar sort of securitist route, but also the same process. I think of uh, you know doing a lot of teaching and also then writing, and partly you know the writing of the service design book was really because I needed a book to teach from, and there wasn't one, and so I sort of wrote the book that I wanted to teach from and. You know, and since then, I think, you know, my role at Fjord is, is um, at Fjord Client Evolution and um, Fjord Evolution does all the internal training um, and learning experiences for our own Fjordians and quite a lot of our Accenture colleagues. And Client Evolution does this for clients. And we were talking before about there's a sort of growing ask for this amongst uh, in the community. Why do you think that learning is so important inside these organizations?
2: I think for a couple of reasons. Um, anyone who's been in the agency world or connected to it, there are, there are cycles, boom and bust cycles of companies. They externalize a lot of the work for a period of time, and then they decide for cost-saving reasons or organizational reasons, they want to bring that in-house. And that cycle just sort of oscillates. And it feels like we're in one of those bring-it-in-house cycles right now. And at the same time, we see a lot of digital transformation, and um, Leah can speak to this more, but just generally speaking, a lot of different industries and markets that are feeling the pressure to transform and be more aware of the the possibilities of expanding their business into digital spaces, rethinking products, and so forth. So they're making those investments. And it's kind of a natural fit that agencies who do this stuff so well and have domain expertise, that they could bring that wisdom to companies. Companies where they're already paying consultants to come in and and train their developers how to be agile and execute all of the processes around that. Um, There's the converse side, which is design, like how might design be more operationalized and um, effective in-house.
1: I would add, I mean, to sort of deepen the conversation a little bit about the the pressure that digital transformation is creating, I think organizations are, are seeing a level of disruptive challenge that they really have never experienced before and it's driven by digital and by technology there was some analysis from InnoSight a little while ago that concluded that the average life of a company on the S&P 500 is is really shortening in the 60s the average life of a company on on that index was like In the 33 years or something. And it's forecast to be about 12 years by 2027. And so this indicates that companies are sort of staying at the top of their game for shorter amounts of time. They're being unseated by disruptive competitors faster. And and there's just uh, more M&A activity as well than ever before. And so all of this is creating a really volatile kind of marketplace for companies in every industry. And on top of that, technology is making it possible for people to to sort of break into industries from the side. So uh, you might not, you know, a few years ago have thought that, you know, a Google or an Apple would be, uh, you know, competitive in an automotive industry, for instance, but technology is making it possible for all kinds of industries to to enter into new places. So in that kind of a marketplace, uh, organizations are discovering that they need to understand design and technology better, but they also need to be more nimble and faster and and have techniques that enable them to learn in the market uh, rather than spend a lot of time teeing up a big strategy and then making a big bet. And the consequence of that is everybody's needing to learn new skills that they haven't had before. Skills related to technology and related to design, but also just related to working in a kind of blended cross-functional team in a manner where you can be more connected to your customers and learn faster together. So those are some courses.
0: So, I mean, constant learning is crucial as a response to constant change. Right? Precisely. Yeah. So on that, Design Better is this amazing resource. I know a lot of the designers in Fjord use InVision's products all the time. And, of course, your – well, you call them books, which is always kind of interesting for me because they're they're sort of they're little micro-science – there's an obvious kind of marketing angle of why Envision would do design better, and and maybe you can describe it, what it is to start with um, for everyone. But it goes way beyond that, so I'm really interested in the kind of the the why and the how of, of design better.
1: Aaron, you probably can answer that one. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, the backstory is um,
2: internally at Envision we think about we call it you know this troika the the people practices and platform. The platform is the part that I think externally people are pretty clear about that Envision makes a, a platform, a suite of tools to empower design teams to um, you know do their work more efficiently. And then the the practices piece, we often say that just because you've bought a hammer doesn't make you a master carpenter. Uh, you'll have to have the wisdom and know-how to understand how to wield that hammer to great effect to create something worthwhile. And so that's what our team, what Leah and I and our colleagues, we work on is trying to understand, package, and convey in an accessible way the practices that empower the best teams to be successful. And we're in a pretty unique position because we have relationships with so many different design teams. You know, they're Many, many thousands of design teams that use our products, and that gives us access to lots of different types of people where we can go talk to them, interview them, visit them in person. Sometimes we shoot video on site, and we get to have some candid conversations with design leaders about you know, what are the, the most salient problems and challenges that, that you face as a team, Uh, What are the lessons that you've learned that have helped you make big jumps forward? So we're trying to collect those stories and give those to the rest of the industry. Um, We just talked about, you know, all these different companies entering the digital space and there's a steep learning curve, right? This constant learning curve. If we, could empower them to make that digital transformation a little bit more smoothly and maybe faster, we empower design as an industry. We help grow that. And clearly, that's a good thing for a company that makes tools that that help design teams do their work best. So. We think of design better, but just more generally, all of our investments in producing content. We've produced a documentary film. We've um, produced multiple books. We have workshop series that we've taken all over the world. These are significant investments, and they're not investments where there's immediately like there's we get some return off of that. We are making investments in the design community. One because it's something we believe in. Um, very deeply. But also we know that making those investments now opens up opportunity long down the road for the company.
1: And um, I mean, to the, on the topic of books in particular, one of the ways we talk about design better specifically inside the team is we want it to modestly, I think we want it to be a source where you can get kind of all the information you need about maybe a particular topic that's critical to know. So the book should tell you from start to finish, uh, you know, enough to be pretty comprehensively informed about design systems or about design operations or about uh, design leadership or any of these kind of emergent areas where there's a lot of knowledge distributed across, you know, a lot of places on the internet, but we hope to provide a place where you can feel like you're getting a a pretty deep and comprehensive knowledge base in a kind of a one-stop shop, if that's what you're looking for.
0: That's great. So now I've I've realised it's a fantastic research tool for you as an organisation, I guess as well. At getting all of that kind of response back. So I mean, obviously, the conversation about getting investment to do design better and is is going to bring up a, a conversation about well, what's the value and return of value, which brings us really nicely on to uh, the new design frontier or your design maturity model. Aliyah, you're, you're the main author behind this. Can you tell, in case someone, anyone hasn't seen it already, can you actually just describe what it is and why you did it? Yeah.
1: So, uh, the New Design Frontier is a report that we developed based on research that we did late last year. And um, what the research essentially wanted to kind of dig into was, if you can look across a really large batch of companies across the world, across a variety of industries, can we identify the critical behaviors that are most correlated with design driving business impact? And are there profiles of, of maturity Sort of stages of maturity that you can derive from understanding those differences in behavior. So, what we did is we ran a study. We got over 2,200 companies to provide information about kind of what design is looking like inside their organizations. Uh, From that, we did pretty rigorous kind of quantitative analysis and uh, found five kind of naturally occurring maturity levels from low maturity to high maturity where. Maturity means basically design is driving business impact and design is seeing wide adoption across an organization. So the high maturity companies are driving business impact and getting broad adoption with design and the low maturity companies are getting less of both those things. And um, what we saw in the model, which is really interesting, is across these kind of five levels, there's some resemblance to pre-existing models that are already out there. Uh, for instance, if you're familiar with the Danish Design Center's design ladder from the early 2000s, where they have design as form and then you know at the lower levels of maturity and design as process at a mid-level of maturity and design as strategy at the highest level of maturity. When we looked into the activities that organizations that get a lot of business benefit are doing, there's some evidence of of that kind of progression. But we found some other steps along the way that I think are new new to where we are right now. So in the lowest maturity companies, design is really focused on form, but specifically the form of like screen design. As they move up in maturity, they focus on design as process, but it's a very constrained idea of process that's really focused on controlled collaboration in like workshop settings or sprint settings. Then as they move up in maturity, it's still kind of a process emphasis, but it's about scaling a function and enabling a kind of operational excellence And then beyond that, actually, there's a kind of a new critical kind of component of maturity that I don't think we see in previous models, which is teams that start to understand how to use the test and learn process that's sort of embedded in the design itself to make better decisions as an organization. So teams that are running experiments and establishing hypotheses and using data uh, from all of that to say, okay, this is the direction that we need to go in for our customers. Um, And then at the the summit, um, really organizations that connect design strategy with business strategy. So um, those are sort of some of the characteristics that we see as teams move up in maturity but the really exciting part is that from this analysis we were also able to say those higher maturity teams are they have a greater kind of correlation with saying design is driving profit (laughs) design is driving cost savings design is driving employee efficiency design is driving the creation of design related ip like patents versus the lower maturity teams where really most of them are just saying design is making things more usable which isn't bad but it's limited
0: so design has been kind of traditionally quite I think quite bad at sort of evidencing its value. And it's partly partly because I think some of the soft metrics around what design does. So, you know, like product usability and customer satisfaction, or that you can kind of measure that with a number, but there are a lot of the actual sort of custom, the experiential stuff doesn't boil down always to a, a neat number, or if it does, the sort of number starts to lose its its kind of meaning. But it also seems to be just a um I mean, historically for decades, a thing that design has been not great as an industry of, of kind of evidencing, although it's there's been a f- sort of a few different reports on it and more recently. But what was interesting, I thought, around the um, I think it's the level threes, the architects you call them, is that they're kind of hitting really high on usability and customer satisfaction and even revenue, but the valuation and share price was a really kind of low metric on those ones. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think what is kind of fascinating is we see very, very large design teams now in many organizations. I mean, numbering in the hundreds with quite a bit of operational excellence, but still a lot of kind of hand wringing about how you're supposed to measure design. And it's, I think that that's kind of like the last bastion for designers to understand how to really demonstrate and measure their business value. So The characteristics of a team that knows how to measure, I don't think it's that they've figured out like that magic dashboard of these are the design metrics that make sense. I mean, organization by organization, I think they still have, you find different sets of measures that people key in on. But the really critical behavior is that there's a kind of practice and a mindset of measurement where the outset of an initiative, cross-functional team works together and says, okay, what are human-centered measures that we are going to pay attention to to determine if this is a better experience. And then through that testing process, they actually test them and figure out <laughs> how things perform and uh, and then report those those numbers out. And so it, what it means is in the end, design has a, an easier ability to actually demonstrate kind of concrete impact on specific initiatives. And because those teams are working in a closer kind of collaborative fashion with product and with engineers and with data scientists it's easier for them to get a hold of the numbers to say you know the the design work we did here also had an impact or at least a relationship to some of the kind of business measures that we're measuring here as well.
0: And so there are also in a kind of faster sense and response cycle to use Jeff Gotthel's term um, I guess in those teams or those more advanced teams they're, they're getting stuff out there getting feedback quicker and being able to kind of uh, react and respond quicker and partly because they've got those systems in place and ways of working in place to do so. Yeah, exactly. But part of what you are just talking about is also businesses perhaps have been measuring the wrong things, or at least that what you're talking about here is actually rethinking the kinds of metrics that you're measuring. It's not just share price and and the bottom line.
1: Yes and no. I mean, I think it's measuring all the things that you traditionally have measured, but also within the context of specific initiatives, going through the process of understanding how you will know if it's actually been an improved experience from an end user perspective. Facebook actually has a great model for this. You know, they, they sort of identify at the outset of an initiative, what's the real human problem that we think we're solving? How do we really know it's a problem? Where's the data that supports that either quantitatively or qualitatively? How will we measure that we've solved that problem? And then they make sure that they actually do measure it first through small batch tests and then through larger beta tests and then, you know, kind of out in the wild. But that sort of question, that fundamental question, like what's the human problem? That's a good design question to start with. And uh, that's the kind of critical behavior that's connected to that, that kind of test and learn cycle.
0: Yeah, so it's not just how does this make us more money? There's a kind of assumption that if you solve some of those things that the money will flow, presumably.
1: Yeah, well, and in some cases the connections are a little closer. So if we know that improving the human experience here will mean that people are able to know, accomplish a task more quickly than that, you know, that task may have a relationship to money. So it's not that they're totally disconnected, but it's that there is some discipline in the process to say, what at least from a, from our customer's perspective is their goal? And how do we know that we are actually improving the experience to help them accomplish that goal as well?
0: So Aaron, there's, there's a few surprises in here, I think. What were your biggest surprises when the data came in or the first kind of shaping and insights came in? I think there are.
2: A number of surprises. Um, One thing that was, you know, kind of fundamental that I found really interesting was just how the, like the tiers of maturity were very clear in, you know, after analyzing the results of the study. And then generally speaking, the ratios, ratios of designers to engineers was something that We had a a hunch was like a really important thing to measure and, and watch in companies to predict whether or not design had a strong culture, a strong voice, had influence on strategy in the business. And we'd been doing a fair bit of research, in depth research, studies of individual companies for a project called the Design Genome Project, where we just look at a series of companies who are very design forward in their thinking and break down things like their organizational structure, practices, and various other attributes that might give us some clues as to what leads to their success. And ratios was one of the things that was very interesting as we mapped that out. Like A lot of these companies had pretty strong ratios of designers to engineers, that it wasn't like one designer to 70 engineers, though we did see a couple that had that. They were mostly outliers. But then in the study, when we look at it really broadly, a bigger sample size, we see that there's really just not a lot of correlation between really good ratios of designers to engineers and having um, strong impact for the business. So that was uh, that was interesting and surprising to me.
0: Was your assumption that the lower the ratio was, or you know, the, the more even the ratio was, the the more mature they would be? Exactly. Yeah, and um, yeah, it's just not not the case. So we've also got this kind of funny peak kind of in the middle, right? Where in the maturity. So at the level ones, there's actually quite a high number of designers, average number of designers in the org. And mm-hmm. then it kind of dips. And then at level three, it really kind of peaks. It's really high. Well, it's, you know, it's really high. So like 54 is, you've got the average number here. And then it kind of tails off again. So the higher those companies go in their maturity, the fewer designers they then have, What's going on there?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, what I would say is I don't think it necessarily means that you you can't be mature unless you have a small, focused design team. I mean, I think design resources are not a bad thing. Right there in the middle, that level three peak, I think, is really reflective of the fact that that level is about trying to make a large Scaled design function. And so that's where you see those, those big teams, those teams of hundreds of people that have dedicated design operations and dedicated design systems teams and specialized design roles. And, and with all of that scale comes, you know, additional headcount. And so that's very sort of emblematic of the level three archetype. I think broadly that average number, that kind of 12 to 15 or whatever that you see kind of at level two and four and five is it's just a sort of standard for the industry. And then at levels three and level one, there are some of these kind of larger outliers that just tip the average a little bit. But the, the big takeaway from all of this for me is that there are just a lot of companies that are hiring a lot of designers and at level one, level three, are not necessarily calibrating those processes to make sure that they're driving a lot of business impact. And that's concerning. I mean, I think there's a, there's a lot of wind at our backs right now as a design community, because business leaders know that they need design to support them in their digital transformations, but they don't even quite know what it's supposed to do or how it's meant to work. And they have a sense that if it goes well, it's going to help them weather a chaotic market. But the real concrete benefits that a lot of organizations are at least Measuring that they're getting kind of start and stop at maybe usability and customer satisfaction. So, the implication here that you just, just hiring headcount is not enough. You actually need to make sure that, you know, whatever the, the team size, it's set up in a way to actually drive really kind of concrete impact that can be measured is, uh, is a really critical takeaway.
0: Yeah. I mean, rewiring the organization is a, is a really tough. Thing. And I think, you know, I mean, a lot of our work starts with a customer's experience piece of work. And then there's this realization of, oh, in order to deliver that, we're getting in the way of ourselves all the time. And now we're going to, to do an employee experience piece of work. And then there's another transformation bit because of all the kind of tools and processes are just hindrances all the time. When you've been doing your rounds, as it were, both inside the interviews you've been doing and going to visit people and you're getting all that kind of feedback, What has been some of the toughest challenges in terms of that kind of design meets organizational inertia or organizational kind of structure?
1: I think that the toughest challenge is also sort of the silver lining, which is the really hard part, I think, often is getting design to work more effectively with within its own sort of sphere of influence. When we talk about like, oh, you got to have the culture right, we have to have the right cultural conditions to be able to do design. That sounds massive and so daunting. And it just feels like, ugh, how can we ever change our entire culture? Let's give up before we start. But what the data seems to indicate, which is I think promising, is actually design teams, if they can really focus on calibrating and improving those key working relationships with product management partners and engineering partners and the critical partners that they have to work with day to day to get something out the door. And if those working relationships can have good kind of agreements and processes in place that that enable design to really integrate into the the digital product development process effectively, those teams can move fast regardless of what's going on more broadly in the culture. So I think the the exciting news is like start where you are. (laughs) Examine if you are doing the design process fully and faithfully the way that you learned in design school. If you know that you need to be doing a lot of research, but you're not doing a lot of research, for instance, start there. That obviously means you need to work on those key relationships with the critical partners that will enable you or, or hinder you from doing core research, for instance. And then when you're doing that research, ensure that it's, you know, following the good sort of generative design process that we all know best. And you're not, uh, uh, falling in love with one idea and committing to it, but that you're actually using the test and learn process to explore a variety of different uh, potential directions, and that you're working with those key partners to understand how you're going to measure it and finding a way to get that data. So, those are the sticking points that we hear a lot of teams talking about, but it's also, it shines a light on where they need to focus first and building those relationships.
0: And where have you sort of uh, heard examples of teams gaining that permission? Because if I'm the other end and I'm the, the CEO or I'm, I'm, ahead of a kind of major department, say, you know, in a large organization, I'm going to need some convincing of why I should invest in all of this. And you're now disrupting all of my sort of carefully honed processes and uh, the machine that I'm running. So I think this is the catch-22
2: that I hear from so many designers. is like, there's some external factors that prevent them from doing the work that they want to do. And they feel like, you know, I can't do great work here because I don't have executive buy-in or some external thing. But what we see from a a number of companies who are successful, they don't wait for that permission and they don't wait for investment and they have this kind of DIY mentality thinking about how might we develop business acumen, how might we pay attention to what the business needs, what are some cost centers of the business that design could have an impact on, and then secretly Behind the scenes, they're doing some experimentation where they create some design work that doesn't require a ton of engineering help. You know, trying to use the tools that they have at hand to be able to do something that creates value. So instead of a lot of hand waving of like, "Hey, design's really important. This is something you should invest in." Show, don't tell. Um, being able to like tie something back to business value, and I think that goes back to the, the earlier discussion about measuring the impact of design and KPIs and, you know, designers kind of struggling with that. Um, You know, we often feel like in a qualitative field, it's hard for us to communicate in a quantitative way to our colleagues. And one way to get there is to develop that business acumen and work on projects that specifically tie back to value for the business.
1: So uh, Aaron referenced earlier one of our other projects, Design Genome, which is a kind of a series of deep dive case studies on organizations who have uh, really, for lack of a better word, like they've advanced their maturity through specific tactics. And in that series, there are a lot of really great examples actually of companies kind of starting scrappy or adopting techniques that uh, were a little bit DIY. So I mean, one jumps to mind, uh, there's an interview with a woman named Abigail Gray, who used to be had a financial services company in North America called Northwestern Mutual and, uh, since moved on to Google, but her, her MO is really like, just start by identifying something that can be fixed. That isn't maybe the most high profile critical thing to the business, but where there's, you know, opportunity to um, make some concrete impact, learn what the business owner cares most about in that thing, and then use the design process to improve it and show those concrete benefits and and get whatever metrics you can attach to that. And, and from there, I I think she had an example of like redesigning a, some page where you can switch to digital or like you know get stop getting paper statements sent to you or something and so they did just like a basic like a design facelift and and really drove some concrete business numbers from that and i mean it's one small example but that's the kind of behavior that we see this kind of scrappy start start DIY teams doing, which is like, okay, what's an area where we really can have impact? What's an area where it seems like the design process can, can move a lever that people will pay attention to? And then from there, that starts to build proof and evidence that the organization sort of cares about. And um, I saw this pattern again and again when we were doing analysis at Forrester, actually, that you start with some small kind of hot house project where you can protect it and you can nourish it and you can grow a really great flower. And then you show that flower to the organization. And it, from there, executive sponsorship typically it becomes easier to secure. And with the executive sponsorship, then you can actually get the resources that you need to start to
0: scale it as you go. That's a, a very empowering message, really, because I, I see quite a lot of what I'd sort of term learned helplessness in in teams, and not just design teams, but often sort of um, teams who are tasked with customer experience or innovation uh, within large organizations, because they, I think they... There's a tendency, and particularly in service design, to boil the ocean. You see how everything's all connected, and you want to kind of fix it all. And then, of course, it just meets resistance after resistance and 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 fails. So the idea of just setting the bar low and doing it really well, and then I call it the umbrella in the rain because it's you know the thing that kind of everyone's laughing at you carrying around. And as soon as you've actually it, it rains and you've got the umbrella, everyone wants to be your friend. You know, it seems to be you have to kind of set up that dynamic a bit in in large orgs.
1: I love that umbrella.
0: So um, there was another surprise in this, um, and it's partly based on my experience too, which I was quite surprised by the the leading industries compared to some of them that I thought there would be. And you even wrote in in the report that you know, banking was surprisingly one of the ones that that had some of the most room for improvement, which I can kind of see in some areas. And and obviously banking's almost kind of split in that way that there's there's the neo banks who are. Just going completely mobile and starting from scratch, and they've got no no legacy. Um, and then there's other banks that are kind of really creaking. But I was I was kind of quite surprised that healthcare and pharma were in the kind of higher maturity companies. Only partly because their their cycles are so slow, right? Because of things like clinical trials and stuff, it it, it really slows down their uh, their pipeline. Was that a surprise to you, or, or had you? expected any of those
1: um, well I think in the case of healthcare in particular I think there's a lot of kind of technology based kind of disruptors who are in, who are in that pool so people who are trying to really take the opportunity to chip away at what is so inefficient about healthcare. And actually, when we looked at the profiles of those kind of level four and level five companies, there was a kind of emergent archetype that you could start to see, which is a company that identifies that there's an area that's neglected, that has sort of processes that feel like they're left over from a bygone era, and then they're using technology and design to try to move fast and disrupt that space. So in the healthcare pool, I'd say there's a fair representation of those kinds of organizations.
0: Now, every good academic knows that a piece of research ends with the need for more research. So having got to where you've got now, and and congratulations on the report, and it looks beautiful, its it's both online and and the PDF. Has it kind of opened up things where you thought, I want to dive deeper into this now?
1: Absolutely. Uh, Yeah, I feel like this... Uh, you, you would know this, you both would know this from writing a book, but when you write a book, you think you're done. And then the book is published. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh my gosh, now we do all the work to, to have the conversations <laughs> about the book and think about more things that the book should have said. And I feel this is true with the report as well. But some things that are immediately are jumping out. So first of all, I think there's a lot of appetite for more industry specific deep dives. So wanting to know more about what's going on in healthcare or banking or professional services, that's definitely an area where there's a lot of interest. I, th- I think there's desire just for more kind of case studies and profiles of companies who've made these journeys. So that's something that we're going to be looking into. And separately from that, I think this is a really interesting one. We've been hearing that it would be kind of great to have the Cliff Notes version of this in the language of product management, or in the language of engineering. So all the same principles, but it's very much, you know, from designers for designers. And yet it touches on a need that broad cross-functional teams have, which is to have everybody participate in a a more healthy, human-centered design process to get better products out the door. And so the the signals, if that's healthy or not, might look a little bit different if you interpret them in the language of an engineer, but they're still relevant signals. So what's the version of that, you know, that's in the the lingua franca of perhaps another discipline? So those are some things we're thinking about as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, we talk about design from within and this thing called living businesses quite a lot, which is meant to be quite a kind of practical approach from the other end, which is if you're a business owner or if you're a kind of manager and you're investing in design, this is how to invest in it. And it feels like this. there's a, you know, the flip side of this is, is something like that too that you could create.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: So one of the things that envision does which an increasing number of companies are doing particularly in the digital space because it kind of lends itself to it is as I understand you're a completely distributed and remote working organization is are you completely distributed or is there a kind of a group of people somewhere
2: Yeah I mean we're we're roughly around 800 employees and I think maybe 21 countries. And we also have a number of colleagues who are digital nomads who, you know, one week they're in South Africa, next week they're somewhere in Argentina, and the week after that they might be in San Francisco. So, you know, with this sort of working situation, people can move around and have the, the freedom to work wherever feels right for them. And, it's really not that hard to stay connected and stay productive, um, at least in my experience. And, uh, you know, it's, it's funny to see people in different locations. There's even times where I've had calls with colleagues who are sitting on a boat or a colleague who is sitting on the floor in the backseat of a minivan commuting to, uh, you know, someplace for, uh, right before a holiday weekend. So it's, it's pretty easy for us to stay
0: connected. You've obviously got kind of teams of people working together to, to build both your, your products and also all, all of the design better and materials. That's right. Um, what have you learned from working remotely that you think is applicable to any design teams? Because I, I, sometimes, you know, the, the kind of difficulties actually show up where there are perhaps invisible difficulties in, in a face-to-face or in a studio setting, but they're amplified by the remoteness and so they become things you really need to fix.
2: I'd be curious to hear Leah's perspective on this but from my side it feels like they're the same types of challenges that you know when a company grows and you've got more people the usually the the biggest problems are around communication and just you know general bandwidth for communicating and getting everyone informed and making sure that people are involved so you can have effective collaboration and that happens in a, a remote setting as much as in real life in my experience at least Um, I experienced a, a lot of those challenges with communication when everyone was in the same building. And so I think that one thing about remote is because we know that there is that challenge that we don't have serendipity built into our work. Generally speaking, we can't just count on bumping into somebody in the hallway and catching up with them and making sure they're informed. We have to be very intentional about our communication um, cadence, uh, communication models, and you know, just bringing people in on a regular basis to, to make sure they're informed.
1: I, I would, I mean, I would agree with that definitely. I think we think very intentionally about communication. What's the right structure? Does this thing need to be a meeting, or is this best, you know, to spin up a Slack channel around, or you know, is this a broad newsletter that or an email that needs to be shared broadly with a distribution list? So those things get pretty well thought out, I would say. Connected to that, I think there's what it means to have culture in a remote sense or in a a distributed sense is an interesting question because so much of, I think the experience of an organization's culture sometimes is absorbed by being in the space, you know, and sort of seeing the, the symbols of culture that are hung up on the walls and just in the way that people are kind of interacting in their, in their workspace. And you, and you realize how the space itself is actually shaping culture. Like, Oh, we're a cubicle culture or we're a open plan culture in a distributed sense. So symbols aren't visible. And yet, of course, there is a culture. And so I think you have to be a little more thoughtful about what are the symbols that you want to create and put in place to help people feel really connected to each other. So we have um, we have some interesting things. I mean, there's a lot, I think, that our leadership team does to try to really help you feel like you are part of Envision. And so we'd be we, ranging from a, a robust employee handbook to weekly communications from our, our leadership team. What is that newsletter called, Aaron? The the new one where they they just kind of... Are, it's
2: called The Sync. The
1: Sync, exactly. The Weekly Sync, which is an email uh, from our, our leadership where we get a, a little just like, you know, thought-provoking message from Clark and a spotlight on some critical... You know, initiative that's going on. Uh, there's a little section where there's the shelfie of the week, where employees will take a picture, a selfie of their bookshelf, and share it with the oh know, company God. just to get a sense of who you are and tips on like you know being effective in a pro, you know remote productivity kind of sense. And so it's just like you know a weekly touch point just to feel like we're having a shared conversation. So those kinds of things are important. We also do get together once a year, our full company get together, all, all hands is called IRS because we get together in real life. And the organization puts a lot of effort into making that a very meaningful experience for everybody. So those things are important. Um, personally, I would also just say, as someone, as a designer, basically, the the not being able to get into a room at a wall with other people is real. And you feel that sometimes in the process where you're just like, okay, we're talking about this thing. Man, it would be good if we could just stand shoulder to shoulder with <laughs> you know? And so- there's a, a few things we do about that. One is we actually use a tool called Freehand that Envision developed that it replicates that process as well as it can in a digital sense. And we lean on that for a lot of things. Just, it's a drawing space where we can all be on a shared canvas and we use it to do wireframes, but also sketch out roadmaps and just collect notes. And it's that ends up being very useful for us. And then I actually have a whiteboard in my room, in my, my office, and um, I know other colleagues do as well. So sometimes you just have to stand up at your own whiteboard and sketch those things out. But uh, yeah, so you have to kind of figure out
0: the hacks for that. So I was going to ask you this, to scratch my own itch, actually, which is one of the hardest things I find, because I, I actually work mostly remotely as well, um, although most of the audience are working in, in studios. But um, occasionally when we then spin up a satellite studio somewhere, that it's one or two people, and they're sort of uh, hooking into the rest of the network. Uh, but synthesis is one of the toughest things I find to try and do when you're not in a room together and you don't have that, because you know, part of the process is really about getting everything out of the computer, getting up on the wall, and, and kind of being able to see that that whole uh, of everything together, and starts sort of doing that pattern making. So I'm really fascinated about uh, your approaches to that. I think that at
2: least for our team, we're still figuring some of those things out. I think the product team probably has been at that for a longer time, but we just recently ran a remote sprint with uh, team members on both coasts here in North America. And, you know, I'd say that there were some things that were really successful about it and there was a lot of synthesis, some things that might've been easier and, and better if we were in person. But, you know, generally speaking, just like any sprint, we came into it with a lot of research ahead of time. So we could cut to the chase and present it and have conversations. And it was sort of, you know, we're all together in Zoom, talking through these things, bringing in other colleagues and stakeholders to get perspective. And then taking a break and doing like individual work, getting something to eat, you know, kind of letting things stew a bit. And then coming back together, and uh, you know, we also tested remotely with um, real customers as well. So, you know, how does synthesis work? I think that one thing that I have always appreciated about remote is the possibility of retreat feels a little bit more tangible, accessible than when I was in real life in an office where it felt like my time, like retreating, was harder to do. Because there was always someone who could come and interrupt, and that was good to a certain degree. But I felt like you know I, I worked a couple days a week at Mailchimp from home, and those were the the days I was most productive. <laughs> yeah,
0: I'm working from home today because I've got lots of work to do. Right.
2: So um, being able to schedule that time um, together, and knowing that there's also you need blocks of time for deep thought work. That's actually how I have it blocked off on my calendar: deep thought work time. That you know, that's a really important part for, for me to be productive.
0: Yeah. I mean, that thing of being, having to sort of stew in the data for a bit as well, I think is really important. It's quite hard to do if you, I mean, again, there's similarities I found between that and writing a book where you kind of at some point you need to be able to hold the whole thing in your head. And if you're constantly getting distracted, it's uh, it ruins it. It's very hard. Leah, you were going to say something. Yeah. One other
1: thing I would add about the topic of distributed teams is I find they're just so much more humane for people with real lives. And I, I say that as a working mom, I have two kids and, um, it's just the reality that life is extremely busy and messy. I feel like envision it, that's just like a fundamental truth that they accept and support and try to, you know, enable their employees around. And I, I just recently the other day came across a stat that I guess our attrition rate for working moms is 4%, which is phenomenally low. That's
0: so, incredible.
1: It, it just really it's um, it's just nice to work for a company that really wants to help you have a great life.
2: And it's not uncommon for us to have these BBC moments. You remember the guy who did the interview and his two kids came marching in (laughs) and tried to play it off. And, you know, it's not uncommon for my boys to walk in and be on camera and say hello. And, uh, you know, I see Leah's kids on a regular basis too. And this is actually one thing that I think is worth pointing out about remote is the notion of seeing inside someone's house. I mean, I've worked with people for a decade or more prior to envision. And I felt like I knew them professionally, but I didn't really know them very well personally. And part of that can be on me for not, maybe not making the best effort, but it seems to come very easily with this scenario because I'm always peering into a colleague's house and I see like at Christmas time, the Amazon packages (laughs) uh, stacking up in the corner or I don't know, like getting ready for guests or just, you know, like they, they move around to different points in their house in their kitchen or on the back porch or whatever. I I really value that. I think that's a, an important thing and it it makes me feel more of a human connection to colleagues.
0: I totally agree. It's true. I, I didn't think of that, but it is true. I mean, I was on a Skype call with a client the other day and my daughter came over and, and I was, you know, saying, no, I, I can't do it now right now. Not right now. But um, actually they said, it's really nice. You know, it made you very human. And I think it's really important. And that
2: I think about what that does for kids too, that seeing what their parents do for a living that hasn't happened for like a century, you know, like when people were crafts people, you know, they were blacksmiths or seamstress or, you know, doing a thing with their hands that once we shift to being knowledge workers, it's hard for our kids to really see what we do, and therefore we have that mysterious barrier between us. But for my boys to be able to walk in and hear me talking about design or hear my colleagues, that's a conversation
0: starter. Yeah, it's true is isn't it? I, I was had I had that very thought the other day. That um, also my my father was a designer, and um, or and still is. I mean, he's an artist really now in retirement. But he, I remember walking into his studio or his study and seeing, well, you know, he, he was a graphic designer. So it was in the days before computers, right? So it was all, all the papers, all the kind of lecture set, trays of lecture set, and all of that kind of paraphernalia of graphic design. It was very clear, you know, what he did for a living. And now, you know, I think our kids just think we watch TV all day. Just talk to people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seems to be what I do. One last question, which is, What's the future of all of this, and or at least what's the future of for you um, in envision and and better design, and and where would you hope this is all going to go as an industry?
1: What a big question! Well, I think the future is there is an industry, uh, which uh, you know perhaps has not been the case in the past. So the idea that there is a a large need across many companies and in many industries for a substantial and well-running design discipline is new. And some organizations are there and many more organizations are have yet to get there, but um, hopefully we'll be kind of there along the way, helping to educate people on kind of the, the critical things they need to do. When we think about the research and the maturity model, I kind of imagine a a growing gap, to be honest, where I think there are a lot of companies that will still struggle with perhaps a more limited idea of design, and then a, a subset that will really double down on kind of the data-driven design, hypothesis-driven design process, and, and start applying it to more fundamental business strategy questions, and they will do quite well.
2: Yeah, I think generally speaking, I see more businesses becoming a little bit more design literate. Um, thinking about design the same way that they think about marketing and sales and engineering is not nice to have, but these are essential things to run a business and be successful and achieve the goals that they've set forth for themselves. And you know, generally speaking, I think that and one thing that we learned from the new design frontier study was just the baseline we thought we were going to see was considerably higher. That you know things like design systems—that's a baseline. Uh, whereas just a couple of years ago, that was uh, like a more advanced conversation. And so the baseline continues to move up. Design as a practice becomes more sophisticated. And I think ultimately, for it to be successful, most successful, it needs to extend beyond the borders of the design team. And. Uh, bringing in data, building relationships with stakeholders and the executive suite and engineers and and so forth, Um, just broader connection and collaboration. Design folded into the fabric of the company.
0: What a good way to end. Leah, Aaron. thank you very much indeed. Thank you. It was
1: a
2: pleasure.
0: Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to Power of 10. If you want to learn more about other shows on the This Is HCD network, visit thisishcd.com where well, you'll find ProdPod with Adrian Tan, Ethnopod with Dr. John Curran, and Bringing Design Closer with Jerry Scallion. You'll also find the transcripts and links mentioned in the show, where you can also sign up to the newsletter or join our Slack channel to connect with other designers around the world. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.